As a preacher, I'm aware that sometimes we come to church week after week, and it doesn't seem like the sermon really connects with our daily lives. So you've got these great heroes of the Bible, and you've got Moses who parted the Red Sea, like I can never be a Moses. Or you've got David who was a man after God's own heart. And I'm trying, but I don't really think that describes me. Something I need to do on the microphone or... Okay, I'm just going to use this one here, okay? Okay, or you've got uh, Samson, the biblical Superman, right? I'm never going to be as strong as Samson. You got Jesus. I mean, let's, let's acknowledge it. Like, Jesus was perfect, and the Apostle Paul founded the church. How can I ever rise to the level of these great men and women in the Bible? Or sometimes we uh, preachers get lost on some area of theology that seems really important to us, and you're going like, how does this doctrine of the Trinity or predestination or even honestly going to heaven, I, I, I want to go there, I want to trust in Jesus and go to heaven, but like, tell me something that matters to my life today. Well, if you've ever thought, about, thought that way, then I've got really good news for you today. Because Psalm 127 is all about the daily grind. It's all about daily life. It's all about what I've called the daily climb. So you're trying to climb higher in life, and what are the elements of that? And I'm going to name for you right up at, uh, at the beginning of the sermon here a number of areas that this psalm touches on that have been a part of my life, daily life, even recently. So, for example, projects. How many of you uh, get involved in projects? When I, get, when I start one, I want to finish it. And so one of my projects recently was to redo the front porch of my house. There are only two columns and a couple of rails, but like that was a project. And when I get involved in one, I want to finish it. Another project that I just finished this past Friday and sent pictures of my kids was reorganizing the attic. So we get involved in projects. Psalm 127 talks about the projects that you're involved in. Secondly, Psalm 127 talks about security. And who doesn't think about security either on a national or international level or maybe in your own home? So again, one of the things we did to enhance security at our home just since last year this time is get one of those really cool video doorbells. And now when somebody comes to my house, I can be on vacation with my son and his family in Hawaii, or I can be in my office, and somebody rings the doorbell or even shows up on my front porch. And suddenly they're going like, they're hearing a voice coming out of nowhere. Hello, can I help you? So security is something that we think about a lot. And then there is work. So all of you on some level or another are involved in work. And in my work, I have admitted to our elders recently that I probably work too many hours. I don't know if that is true of anyone else here, that sometimes work life gets a little bit out of balance, but if it does, Psalm 127 is gonna talk about that. And then there's sleep, and I know all of you will tune in when Psalm 127 starts to talk about sleep. So I can't help but think about sleep. I've got this watch on my wrist that connects to an app on my phone, and every day I can go look and see how much sleep I got and what quality of sleep it was, how much was deep sleep. And my, my app has now got this new feature that actually grades my sleep. I'm getting a 74 average in sleep, which means if I were a high school student, I'm getting a D in sleep every single day. Like, and I get reminders of that all the time. 
And then children. Psalm 127 talks about children. And if you have any or you know any or you listen to any, then this psalm is also going to tap into your world, however you connect with children. As I said, one of our children lives in Hawaii, but they will be here. He will be here with his uh, wife and our one grandson who's two years old for two and a half weeks in December. Our daughters will be home then, but our daughters will also be home this week for Thanksgiving. So if you have extended family, and particularly if you connect with children in your family, Psalm 127 is going to speak to your daily life. And then there's the last topic, aging. And you know, it's amazing how people, even when they're 20, they start talking about like, oh, I'm getting so old so fast, or 30 or 40. Well, I'm now the ripe old age of 63. How is it that we baby boomers are now geezers <laughs> who have conversation with one another about our aches and pains and what surgeries we're going to have and ponder out loud which nursing home or child will change our depends when we get a few more years on us? So if you're concerned about aging, like Psalm 127, we'll talk about that as well. So those are the six topics we're going to cover today as we walk through Psalm 127, and hopefully they will connect in some way to your daily grind as well. I'm going to offer you one sort of uh, thought about each one of those six areas that's based on Psalm 127. So let's start with projects. And here's my summary thought. You don't control the outcome. Projects you don't control the outcome. Verse 1 starts, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain, or it's pointless. It's amazing how many things, and this will be a theme throughout these different areas, we think we control, but we really don't. And building or projects would be one of those things. So you map it out, and when it comes to literally a construction project, you uh, hire an architect, or maybe you are an architect, and the architect has to listen to you and find the designs, and then engineers has to fi have to figure out how it's actually going to structurally hold up, and then there are interior designers who get involved, and eventually somebody has to put hands to that project and actually make it happen. So it looks like a very human thing, from the planning process to the actual completion of the project. And that's true of the smaller projects that we do, whether it's cleaning out the attic or you know, doing a carpentry renovation on your home or whatever. It looks to be a very human thing. And the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, it's really pointless. It might even get done, but it's useless is his word. It is vain without God. If I've learned anything about construction and the various uh, projects that have happened at Corinth during my tenure as pastor, I have learned that so much of it is out of our hands and it almost never goes on schedule and on budget. And one of those recently, in fact, it's ongoing, you probably will notice, is our organ project. And so several months ago, we started this project. And I don't know that I've ever met a company who had the fine details and the timing of what they do down to such an exact science. And they knew exactly how many days and how many hours it would do to do various parts of this. They could predict at six months ago exactly when we would have the full organ ready and, um, and it could be played. Well, guess what? One of their key suppliers 
who makes magnets and from whom they have procured magnets. Who knew that organ pipes even needed magnets, right? But one of their key suppliers died this year. So he's been doing this for years, if not decades, and they have to say once again, you know what? There's a lot that is out of our hands. We don't control outcomes even when we think we do. Now have no fear, we will still have organ music at Christmas, but it's just an illustration that the best laid plans can go awry because ultimately the outcome is not up to us. It doesn't matter what project you undertake or who you are or how much experience you have, you do not control the outcome. Nobody can say of any project you undertake, I don't need God on this one. Because if you do, God will make sure he finds a way to remind you that you need him. So the second area our psalm touches on is security. And my one sentence is vigilance will not provide it. Watching won't make it happen. So the psalmist says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. The point is probably not that different from the first one, that it looks like you're doing a very human thing. In the ancient world, they built walls and had watchmen. Uh, in our world, we, think, we tend to think more of cameras and maybe guns. But no matter what you do, and the experts on security and terrorism uh, will all tell you, you can limit perhaps the amount of damage or death, but you can't completely control it. So the psalmist is saying, whatever you think you're doing about security, you just need to know that you can do all of that. And he's not saying don't do it, but ultimately your security is not up to you. Vigilance won't provide it. There's only one who has the power truly to control everything, and that's God. And then we come to work. And my one sentence here is, the key question is why. Why do you work? So the psalmist says, in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. The key word there is toiling. So in some translations it actually says, why do you uh, eat the bread of sorrows? So the idea of toil here is not just the work that you do, it's the unpleasant work that you do. Why do you drive yourself to burnout? Why do you drive yourself to exhaustion? Why are you still doing it is the question the psalmist is asking. So the key question when it comes to work is why. Bob Buford wrote a book called Halftime, and he talks about moving purposefully into the second half of life. So take this moment as your halftime. So that may or may not fit exactly where you are. It certainly fits a lot of folks. But what he says in the book is that the first half of life is for most people times of seeking orderliness and neatness. And religion during that time of life needs to be rational. So I want everything to make sense. I want to be able to control it. There's our word again. So younger adults 
are trying to find ways to control their environment. I want to control my career. I want to control when I get married and have children. I want to control my home. I want to control my spouse. Why do people argue more when they first get married? Because they're trying to figure out how to bring this person into line with what I know a spouse is supposed to look like, right? So the arguments are more frequent, and it really is about how can I manage or control this person that is very strange to me that I now have committed the rest of my life to. So, and sometimes even trying to control your God when you're a younger person. And there's something that happens along the way, and Bob Buford calls it halftime, where you go like, I'm not in control anymore. Maybe it's when the kids become teenagers. And suddenly there's this awakening, like I can't control my children, and it's really okay at some point, most people learn, I can't control or change my spouse, and if they stay married long enough, they just learn to relax and chill about a lot of things in life and actually enjoy the companionship of someone who is very different. But sometimes there are unexpected turns of a career or a family or health. And sometimes those unexpected turns are good and sometimes they're bad, but they end up making you say like, I'm really not in charge of this. And so Psalm 127 is gonna offer perspective, particularly on work in that second half of life. I'd love for it to happen in the first half of life as well, but most people need to get to the second half before this begins to dawn on us. And the point is, it's not about calculating how many hours you work, it's about why you work. And you begin to come to grips with the significance. You begin to be more settled and you know, you sort of realize how much money you're gonna be able to earn in your life and you sort of manage your future planning around that. But, um, I, I, I have admitted to our Board of Elders that I work a whole lot more than I should, but I'm guessing the number of my hours pale next to the number of hours any mother, whether she's employed outside the home or not, works, right? And that's what the NIV is going like. Examine not only how many hours you work, it's not about that, but examine why you work. It's not about the number of hours, it's about when work burdens you down, the bread of sorrows or painful labors. It's when you're way out of proportion, it's you're ready for burnout. And this Psalm says you have to stop and ask yourself some really important questions. Am I working out of fear? Am I driving myself because I'm worried about something that really ultimately is in God's hands? Am I working to control other people or the economy or the environment? Am I working for recognition and fame? Am I working to please someone maybe even who's died a long time ago, a parent or grandparent or a mentor, and I'm really still working to please them? And when I'm working whatever number of hours I'm working, what am I not doing? Who or what am I marginalizing? Those are all great questions to ask when you, when you find yourself going to bed way too late and or getting up way too early. So what the psalmist wants us to recognize is that this work thing also is a gift from God. God has created us with the need to work and with the desire to work to accomplish something. And the why needs to be because I really do believe that God has called me to what I'm doing and that's what ultimately brings satisfaction. And then he gets to sleep. And here's my one sentence about sleep. It's not just about rest. So it says he grants sleep to those he loves. 
that uh, last couple of words there it could be translated to his beloved. It's the Hebrew word Jedidiah, and I will get back to that in a moment. You'll know why that's important, but don't forget it, Jedidiah. So he grants sleep, sleep to Jedidiah. I also love the, uh, an alternate translation for the second part of this verse, because some translations, instead of saying he gives sleep to those he loves, say he gives sleep excuse me, he gives to his beloved even while they sleep. Okay, so hear the difference between the two. In both cases, it's God who's the giver. In one case, sleep itself is the gift, and that's true, right? The, the ability to sleep, the gift of sleep is from God. But if you translate it the other way, and it says he gives uh, to his beloved in his sleep or in their sleep, it means something slightly different. What it means is that you think of yourself as a very productive person for 16 or 18 or hours in the day, however many hours you are awake, and then you have to stop. Do you realize God could have created us without the need for sleep? He easily could have done that. So why did God create human beings with the requirement to sleep? It's because that's the time of life when every single one of us, for however long it is, needs to lay it down and realize that for those few hours, and we're not only not in control, we're not even aware of what's happening in our environment around us. So this incredible gift of sleep is twofold. One is, it's reminding you that you have a God who never sleeps, that he's on duty 24-7, and two is the reminder that your efficiency is always limited. So God wants you to know that there are times of life when you have to release it and let it go. So biologically, sleep can actually do something for you. There's research now that the more sleep you have, the less likely you are to have Alzheimer's, for example. It's actually eliminating poisons from your brain. So God knows that you need that sleep to let go so that this can happen inside your body biologically, but there's also a great spiritual reason for sleep that you know that this is a God who is still giving to you when you can't give anymore. You give up, finally drop off to sleep, and God is still giving to you all the time that you are sleeping. So sleep is not just about rest. And then we come to children. My one sentence is that children are a gift. Children are a gift. So the psalmist says children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from them. Thank you again for allowing us the privilege of sharing your children. Psalm 127.3 about children is an easy verse for those who have children, for those who have happy and healthy children. It is a hard verse for those who want to have children and have not been able to, or those who have lost a child. So don't focus so much on the phrase here that they are a heritage or reward, as if we earn children. That's not the point of it. The point is rather that the child himself or herself is another one of God's good gifts. Children are a gift from God. This is what Wes focused on in the children's message. And like all of God's gifts, for reasons we do not fully understand, they are not distributed equally. 
And there are some who do not receive that gift, and it's not because they're poor Christians or people, and there are some who are given a child for a short amount of time, and then that child is taken away, and it's not a punishment from God either. The point of the psalm is that you look at every child, no matter how long they live, and how long you have them, you look at that child as an incredible blessing, a gift from God, and you cherish them for as long as you have them because there's no guarantee. Children are not a right. They are a gift. And to look at a child as someone whom God has given to me transforms how I view and value that child. So this is the point of Psalm 127, verse 3, that once again you see something that you didn't produce or are responsible for bringing into the world. You go like, yeah, I kind of did, like I had something to do with that child being conceived. Okay, but as uh, Eugene Peterson points out in Psalm 127, you might have thought you worked to bring a child, but that's really not considered work, okay? All you did was have a lot of fun and then out of that came a miracle of a child who was born. Who can ever say, like, I am the one who brought this child or these children into being? Only God can create that miracle, and he does so in absolutely amazing and wonderful ways. I love uh, watching particularly a dad after the first child. So the mom has carried that baby within nine months and she's known what a miracle that baby is. But when you see a dad who for the first time sees that baby, I love watching how they're just totally mesmerized and can stare at that child for hours like we created this. Children are a gift from God. And then we come to the end, the last two verses of the psalm, which are about aging. And my one sentence about aging is that you're going to need help. You're going to need help. Now what the psalmist says is like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. That's kind of odd language to us. So let me unpack it for you. What it's saying is the reason children are a blessing is because when you get older, the situation is gonna be reversed. They were dependent on you for a while and now you're gonna be dependent on them. So at some point, you're gonna to get too old to care for yourself and you're gonna be really glad that there's someone who will take care of you. So provision and protection are a gift from God through your children. Now, they didn't have a social safety net back when Psalm 127 was written. Uh, and we have other ways and we don't all think of our children. In fact, most of us are going like, I don't know if my kids will want to take care of me or not. But we do have a social safety net. So that's not the bottom line of this psalm. The bottom line is a reminder that as you get older, somebody else is going to have to take care of you. Unless you die really suddenly, which some of us think might be a gift as we get older, but you don't really have that choice. And your brain might start to go or your body might start to go and you can't defend yourself anymore and you can't provide yourself for yourself anymore. Somebody else is gonna have to do that and that's what aging is all about. So as you get older and you need this, again, wherever that comes from, whether it's from your children or your culture, that too is a gift from God. Um, so here's the point. Part of the reality of aging is that as we revert to that, that, that state of childlikeness, we need somebody else. So you got the theme that runs through these six things? 
these are all six parts of our lives that we think we're kind of managing and controlling. And Psalm 127 keeps coming back to this reality that we're really not in charge of any of it, even on a daily basis. So what do we do with this on this Thanksgiving week? If you've been here the last few weeks in either one of our services, you know that we are studying what are called the Psalms of Ascents, or the Psalms for Ascending, the Psalms for Climbing Higher, particularly for the Jewish people as they would go to their three annual festivals. This one is also a Psalm of Ascents, and it's for climbing higher in your daily life. But there's something else in the title of this Psalm that is unique to this among the 15 Psalms of Ascents. This is the only one that adds of Solomon. All right, so little, little quiz question. Everybody gets to participate. Tell me what one word comes into your mind when you hear Solomon. Wisdom, about three of you said that. So, but the rest of you were thinking it, it's okay. So wisdom is what we associate with Solomon. I also associate stupidity with Solomon. All right, so Solomon is a fascinating character. First of all, he was the second child born to David and Bathsheba. The first child died and, uh, because of an adulterous affair, but God blessed him with a second child. And guess what his name was when David named him? It was Jedidiah. You remember that name? So it means the one, the one who is loved. And so when Psalm 127 talks about the one he loves, that's that same Hebrew word. It might be a little hint in the psalm itself that this is Solomon's story, okay? He gives sleep to the one he loves. But Solomon's story continues, and you probably know the part where he becomes king, and God says, like a genie in a bottle, I'll grant you one wish, not three, but one. Whatever you want, I will give to you. And he asks for wisdom, and God says, good for you, because you didn't ask for fame or fortune. Instead, you asked for wisdom. I will give you wisdom, but I will also give you fame and fortune. And so Solomon does become the richest man in the world. He extends the boundaries of Israel to the greatest they have ever been before or since. And Israel has peace and prosperity and security and strength and fame all across the world. The Queen of Sheba comes and visits him and brings him gifts. And Solomon's really amazing until after halftime. And then Solomon, all of this seems to go to his head. And one of the ways that he expanded his borders is you would typically, if you were a king in those days, marry off the princess, marry the princess from a neighboring area, and she became another one of your wives. Well, as you probably know, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I will not insert the usual joke that I often hear from men about this, because it's not about that. It's actually very sad because all of these women then turn his heart against God and they lead him into the worship of other gods. And by the end of his life, Solomon has totally forgotten that God is the one who gave him the wisdom and the fame and the fortune in the first place. And instead, he goes chasing after all of the gods of these women that he has come to adore. And somebody pointed out to me this week that I had not seen before, the Bible only mentions three children that Solomon had. Now, he may have had more. I suspect he probably did conceive more than that. But only three that are even noteworthy enough to find their way into the Bible. And so he doesn't really have a very large legacy among his children. And what's this psalm about? It's about a house 
and a household. There's a play on words in Hebrew. It's about the house that you build and the family that you build. So my question comes, when did Solomon write this? And there are two key possibilities. He could have written it in the first half of his life when he was focused on God, when he was humble toward God, when he wrote some beautiful prayers, when he built God's temple. He could have written it then, and it could have been preserved because that really is the heart of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house and unless the Lord grants the household like it's all pointless. Or it could be that Solomon wrote it in the second half of his life when instead of becoming wiser, he went the opposite direction and actually became more foolish. And Solomon could have been going back and saying, you know what, I wish I'd learned a long time ago that unless the Lord builds the house, it's really all vanity. A third possibility is that Solomon didn't write it at all because the Hebrew can mean about Solomon. Here's a psalm of ascents regarding Solomon. And in that case, it's basically the same lesson, that you can try all you want to build a life without putting God at the center of it, but Solomon's trajectory reminds us that it won't really matter in the end. So here's my assignment for this week. There are six weekdays ahead of us in Thanksgiving week. And I'd just like you to take one of these words and put them at the top of a sheet of paper every week. If you're in the habit of journaling, this is easy. If you're not, why not try it for this week? So put one word each day at the top of a journal. And here are the six words again. Projects, security, work, sleep, children, and aging. I'll mention them again one more time. But those are the six. So on Monday, you're going to write projects at the top. And first of all, you're going to write what you're grateful for. Like, I realize what I've accomplished in this area had to be a God thing. God did that. Eugene Peterson says when writing about this psalm that, hold it, I got the quote right here. The main difference between Christians and others is that we take God seriously and they do not. So the next part of your journal is going to be like, where in my life am I not taking God seriously about my projects? first of all. So where am I trying to get this done and assuming that it's all up to me and it's in my control? So then just do that each day. Gratitude and release. Like where am I grateful for what God has done and where do I want to bring God in? His direction, his guidance, his help. Where is that going to be a part of my world? So projects. What projects am I trying to get done? And then security. Where am I grateful? Where do I need to bring God into this? And then third, work. Some of these might overlap. And then sleep. And then children. And then aging. There's your assignment for Thanksgiving week. Let's pray together. Father, we live much of our lives as if we were atheists. Even when we're believers, we live as if it's all up to us. And we fail to give you thanks. We fail to give you permission to reroute. We give ourselves too much credit. And we march from one thing to another without you at the center of all that we do. So Lord, where we need to acknowledge and confess that, we do so. But we also thank you for the forgiveness that is abundantly available through Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again that we might have life. 
And so we come at this out of a sense of security in your love. We are Jedediah, we are your beloved. And because we're your beloved, you keep heaping on these gifts to us day by day, even the ones that we fail to recognize as coming from your hands, like a good night's sleep. And we entrust ourselves and our ways into you and pray that this week we will be keenly aware, whether with family and friends or by ourselves, we'll be keenly aware that you are walking with us and wanting to walk beside us and direct each part of our lives. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand with me, and if it is your faith, join me as we affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.